If this is your first time with us, we're studying the book of Romans. So if you got your Bible, that's where we'll be. Uh, two weeks ago, we started. Uh, last week, uh, I was gone and Matt Mead uh, filled in for me, did a fantastic job. I got to listen to his lesson online. Uh, so if you haven't been here and you want to catch up, you're more than welcome to get on our website. Both lessons uh, from this series are there on our website. But if you haven't been here and even if you have and you've slept since then, like I have, you may have forgotten some of the things that we've talked about. Uh, so let, let's just kind of review real quick. I'm going to try to control it from up here. That's a new, uh, Tim got us hooked up, so I'm excited about that. Uh, so let's review the first lesson, Romans 1, 1 through 17. We talked about the gospel, the euangelion, the good news. We kind of talked real briefly about uh, sort of the connotation of that word in the first century world that, you know, we, we take these terms and these ideas and they've become what we categorize, and that's kind of helpful to me, is thinking in terms of categories. And we sort of have a category in our mind for religious words, don't we? We have religious words, church words, Bible words that we only sort of use in that category. And gospel is one of those. But in the first century, that wasn't. That wasn't a religious word. That was a political word. That was a military word. That was a word that they would have used to talk about an emperor's victory, or a military victory. In fact, as we go through our lesson tonight, I think that we'll see that sometimes the, the way that we sort of compartmentalize our, our brain and the information that we have, especially as regards to Jesus and the gospel, and we sort of put it in a religious category, sometimes we got to kind of break down those walls a little bit and understand that, that what we're talking about is far more than what we typically think of as religion. It's bigger than that. And so Paul says some things about the good news that if we really dig into, I think it will, will shake us up just a little bit in a good way. He says, one, that the good news was promised by God through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we call that part of our Bible the what? The Old Testament, right? And so he says that what Jesus accomplished, this good news that he's announcing to the people in Rome and the people all over the world, the good news that Paul is proclaiming, isn't a new concept, really. It's the fulfillment of a promise that God made not once or twice, but he made consistently through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so if we can't find what we think of as the gospel in the writings of these prophets, then maybe what we think of as the gospel isn't really the gospel. And I think as we start to go through this, and, and last two weeks ago, rather, we, we talked about Isaiah 11. If you read that and you start to wrestle with that and say, how is it that Paul is saying that all of these messianic promises have come true are coming true, and on the day of Christ, will ultimately, finally, reach their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, the anointed king. How, how is that, and what does that look like? So, Paul says that what, what this good news is, was already promised by God through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He says, number two, that the power that the gospel or the good news, the euangelion, is the power of God for salvation. And if you remember, we talked about salvation is, is forgiveness, 
but it's more than forgiveness. It's deliverance. Deliverance. It's rescue, right? So the, the good news is God's power for delivering a people. And then number three, we talked about that the good news is the means of salvation for everyone. It's the means of deliverance and rescue for everyone who has faith. The Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, I, I think the things that Paul lays out in these first 17 verses, this is the same theme that's going to run throughout the entire book. So Paul's really giving us in the introduction what the entire letter is going to be about. That this good news and everything that it includes, it was promised by God through the prophets in his holy scriptures and that it's his means of delivering everybody. Everybody. The Jew first, yes, God hasn't turned his back on his people. God hasn't forgotten them. God's not ignoring them. God's not saying, oh, nope, sorry, you're not going to get delivered. And he's not saying that to the Gentile either. It's for everybody. It's for everybody who has faith in Jesus. So means of salvation for everyone who has faith, the Jew first and also the Greek. And number four, in it, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, This, really, at at least for the first 11 chapters, this is exactly what Paul is going to be talking about. In the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. And and again, as I said a couple weeks ago, when I think about God's righteousness, I always think about that means God punishes the bad guys. And yes, that's part of it. In fact, that's the part of it that, that, that Matt talked about last week. But God's righteousness means... God keeps his, what? His promises. God is fair. God is fair. God is fair. He's a promise keeper. He doesn't act wrongly. He acts rightly. And his righteousness, his fairness, his equity, the way he lifts up the poor and the brokenhearted, the exile, the slave, and he sets them free. This is revealed in the good news that God keeps his promises and takes care of those that have been oppressed and brings down the oppressor. Again, Isaiah 11 is a fantastic text as, as is many texts in the, in the Old Testament about what the Messiah would accomplish. And then number five, and we didn't talk about this two weeks ago, so this is a review that includes what I didn't get to. So hopefully I get all of tonight's lesson uh, in, in there. But, but number five was this, from Romans 1 and verse 17, that the good news, the euangelion, the gospel, reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith, or from faith for faith, some translations say. Now, if you read five different commentaries, you'll probably get five different ideas of what that phrase means, and they really that's really debated and has been deb- debated. What does that mean, that God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith? And there's different ways of thinking about that, because there's different ways of thinking about, even in English, the phrase, from this to this, right? If I say, from Dallas to Fort Worth, or from Dallas to Plano, then you understand that it's a uh, concept of distance, right? Or if I say that something goes from a caterpillar to a butterfly, then you understand that it's a phrase of, of change. But there's also another way that the Bible uses that phrase a lot, and we use it a lot sometimes. Uh, that doesn't make sense. We use it a lot sometimes. But uh, that we also can say from day to day, 
or from year to year, or from generation to generation. And we really don't mean that something changes, and we really don't mean distance. We really mean iteration. We mean something goes on and on and on and on and on, right? So from generation to generation, this is true. From day to day, this happened. So it's something that, that goes on and on and repeats itself, and continues to repeat itself. And then Paul says in verse 17, he quotes from Habakkuk, and he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he's quoting from Habakkuk. Now, if you know the the story of the, the book of Habakkuk, you know that Habakkuk was upset about the way things were going. And the people were oppressed and the bad guys were winning. And how come this is the case? And God, you're good. Why do you let this kind of thing happen? And God says, well, you're not going to like it, but things are going to get even worse. And the bad guys are going to destroy and come in and wipe you out because of your sins. (laughs) What? They're worse than we are. How can that be the case? You're going to send even worse people in to punish your people that are better than them. I don't understand how that's fair. I don't understand how that's righteous. But in the end, the, the, the idea is just wait and just trust me. Look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Just trust me. I will do the right thing. The wicked will be punished. And my people will be delivered. I will do the right thing. And if you trust, if you have faith, you will live, right? The righteous are those who live by faith. And those who have faith are righteous. And those who have faith will live, right? And this is a concept that Paul is going to prove all throughout this letter to say that the righteous are those who have faith. Faith. The righteous are those who have faith, and those who have faith will live. God will redeem those who have faith. God will save those who have faith. God will deliver those who have faith because God is a righteous God. So I think when Paul says from faith to faith, it's like him saying from day to day or from generation to generation, those who keep on trusting me from one moment of faith to the next, from one moment of faith to the next, generation after generation, day after day, faith after faith, God's righteousness is revealed. Those who have faith will see the righteousness of God. You trust me, and I'll show you that I'm fair. You trust me, and I'll show you that I keep my promises. You trust me, and I'll show you that I will redeem you. Now, that gets awful hard sometimes, doesn't it? And I think we need to be at least as honest as the people in the Bible are. Because 
It's sometimes hard to have faith, isn't it? When you get sick, when you're hurting, when the enemies are pressing in, when you're being persecuted, eventually this church in Rome that Paul is writing this letter to, eventually the Romans would take long sticks and impale them on them, dip them in oil, and use them to light the streets of Rome. Eventually, these Christians in Rome, maybe not those people, but certainly that church family, would eventually be fed to lions, and horrible, horrible, horrible things would happen to them. But the righteous, those who are in a right relationship with God, are those who have faith and faith and faith and faith, not, not being dishonest with themselves or dishonest with anybody else, not ever saying, well, this is easy. It's just wonderful. I love going through this kind of stuff. Saying like Habakkuk, how? Why? When? When will you keep your promises? When will you show yourself to be righteous? And Paul says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, those who have faith will see the righteousness of God and they will live. They will live. Again, I say it all the time. It's just like Jesus said, those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. Okay, and, and that's exactly what Paul is going to say over and over and over again in this and in every letter. Okay, and then... When we talked about, uh, last week, when, when Matt covered for me, did a phenomenal job of talking about Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. And, and again, Paul is talking about the righteousness of God. And, and uh, Matt talked about the fact that Paul covers things like idolatry and immorality, impurity, and inhumanity. That, that the human race... The human race has traded in their vocation of honoring God, because that's what they were created to do, right? That's what we were created to do, was bring glory to God. And we've traded the glory of God for the glory of created things. And instead of worshiping the creator, we've worshiped the created. And that has caused us to become idolaters and immoral and impure and inhumane. And, and I love what Matt said. He said, God's wrath is an expression of his love. Now, if, if you considered yourself to be a good person and a persecuted person, a person who's waited generation after generation after generation after generation for God to bring the hammer down, punish these people for all these horrible things that they're doing, then you'd shout amen, wouldn't you? When you heard about the wrath of God that is revealed against all matters of unrighteousness and wickedness, you'd say, yes, absolutely. That's what a righteous God does. A righteous God punishes those who are evil. So if we had to summarize Romans chapter 1, we might say something like this. God's righteousness is revealed in both his deliverance of his people and also in his wrath, right? That a righteous God delivers those who are oppressed, those who are good, those who've waited for him, those who trust in him, and he punishes those who are evil and wicked and hurt people and and disobey him and, and engage in all kinds of immorality, that that's what a righteous God does. 
Now, at this point, if you're a Jew and you're reading this letter, what are you thinking? You're thinking, yeah, that's exactly right, and that's why God needs to punish all these crazy Gentiles, right? That's why God, I mean, what kind of a righteous God would punish Jews and deliver Gentiles? What kind of a righteous God would do that? Here's one of our problems that we have. Again, I hope maybe we can point out some of these roadblocks that we have as we go along. One of the problems we have is we think entirely individualistically. And the gospel really helps us to embrace some healthy individualism and take responsibility for our own actions and our own lives, our own decisions. But in this first century world to which Paul was writing and which Paul lived in, people thought a lot more collectively in terms of family and tribe and nation, people group, right? And so if God is going to be wrathful against a people group or he's going to deliver a people group, well, then I know he's going to deliver. He's going to deliver my people group, right? He's going to deliver my Jewish people group and these Gentile people over here. He's going to punish them because that's what a righteous God does. He keeps his promises. He promises he's going to deliver the righteous and he's going to punish the wicked. <laughs> I'm part of the righteous and they're part of the wicked, right? So God is going to, yes, amen, Paul. That's exactly right. He's going to bring the hammer down on the, the Gentile. Not on the Jew. Because how could a righteous God punish the Jews? If God punishes Jews, then he's not keeping his promises. And if he delivers Gentiles, that's not fair, right? I'm sure that's exactly what kind of thing they were thinking. Now, look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Okay, you, you all agree with this, right? Paul's saying, you know, all you, you Jewish Christians, you're... I mean, Paul comes from this, he knows exactly what he's arguing and how he's kind of developing his argument. You all agree with that, right? That God is righteous and God punishes the wicked and that he's right for doing so. And they say, yes, we agree with that. So you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we know, we know, don't we, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So you Jews who are sitting over here, and and again, not just individually, but as a group, you Jews over here that are feeling pretty superior to your Gentile brothers over here, because both of these groups exist even in the church. And, And you think your group is so much better than their group and that your group are the delivered ones, and their group are the, the ones who are going to get punished. Well, how can that be the case? Because a righteous judge, a righteous God, his judgment rightly falls on anyone who practices such things. Verse 3, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape? The judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Now, why why would, especially a Jewish Christian, presume upon the kindness and forbearance of God? Because I'm Jewish, right? You know, because I come from Abraham. And so I'm supposed to get a little bit better treatment here. Yeah, I know our people haven't been perfect either, but hey, 
we're Abraham's people. We're descendants of Abraham, so we ought to get a little better treatment because of who we are. Are, Wait, now hold on. I I thought you said God was fair and God was just. God is righteous. And, And that his judgment rightly falls on any group who practices such thing, any person who practices such thing. Yeah, I said that. Then then why are you presuming upon his kindness and his forbearance? In fact, you should know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. You know, God's waited a long, long time, right? Hundreds of years. You've called out, God, come deliver us. God, come deliver us. We're in exile. We're we want, we want you to save us. You, you've been crying out. He hasn't come and he hasn't punished you. He hasn't wiped you off the map. You're still here. He's wrestled with you. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. He's been kind and he's waited and he's had forbearance. And all of that kindness and all of that waiting was supposed to lead you as a group to what? Repentance. And I bet you can guess what the next word is, even if you don't look ahead and see it. But, but this was supposed to make you better. Yes, God loves you. Yes, God has been kind to you. Yes, God has waited. Yes, 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 you have gotten preferential treatment, don't you see? He's preferred you, and he's loved you, and he's treated you so well, but that was supposed to make you better as a group. But because, verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous, again, see, righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no, what? Partiality. Now, first of all, this is just kind of a side note. I I think that we have to, because some of us may have, and I think maybe at some point in my life, I probably had this idea that when you die, that's sort of your own personal judgment day. That's a concept that's not taught in Scripture. Scripture teaches that there will be a day, a day where things get set right, a day of resurrection. Jesus says that the righteous will be resurrected and the wicked will be resurrected. And then we're told all kinds of things about the resurrection and transformation of our bodies and all of those things. And we'll get to those as we sort of go through this letter. But we have to understand that that they're waiting for that day, right? Now, the Jewish Christians seem to think that they're better than their Gentile brothers. Not just because they're better, like law keepers, but because of their... And again, here's where where we have a difficult time. We have a difficult time because we think in terms of religion, and then like in a separate category, we think in terms of nationality and race and those kinds of things. 
But for, for Jewish Christians, that's all tied together. For the Jews, that's all tied together. Their religion and their nationality and their race are all, all one big thing in their mind, right? And some of the things that you feel about your nation patriotically, nationalistically, that's the way they felt about God. I was trying to think, you know, how do, how do I sort of explain this, right? But I think that no matter what country you're from or what country you live in, or if you live in this country, and I'm not picking on Americans because I think it's true of people that live almost anywhere, we sort of think that as Americans or whatever nation, we're sort of entitled to certain things. And if, if somebody wants what we have or, or the, the rights that we're entitled to as citizens of a specific nation or group, then they have to become one of us, Right? And if they don't become one of us, then they can't inherit what we inherit. They can't have what we have because this belongs exclusively to, to me, to my group, to my people. And the Jews were okay with somebody becoming, becoming Jewish, getting circumcised, keeping the Sabbath, eating the right foods and all those things. But the second you start talking about Gentiles who aren't circumcised, in other words, you might say it, they're not flying our flag. Okay? They're not flying our flag. You don't fly our flag. You don't go through the right thing. If you're not one of us, you can't inherit what we inherit. And, and that's exactly what Paul's been preaching, that Jews and Gentiles will all inherit the kingdom of God if they have faith in Jesus the Messiah, regardless of things like circumcision and food that you eat and days that you keep. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to fly the Jewish flag, so to speak. And that's a radical concept, a radical concept. But he's appealing to their knowledge of God, saying, you know what kind of a God he is, don't you? You know that he's righteous, and you know on the day of judgment, you know when God comes to give us our inheritance, when God comes to transform these mortal bodies when God comes to deliver his people and set all things right and lift up the broken and the oppressed and bring down the oppressor and the wicked, you know that God is going to be fair and he will not show, what? Partiality. So you're not going to get treated differently just because you're physically a descendant of Abraham or because you're circumcised or anything like that. God is righteous. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned, all who have sinned, Jew, Gentile, without the law, that's Gentile, will also perish without the law. They'll be punished. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. You don't get bonus points because you knew it. Right? You, you think because we have the law. We're the law people. We're the people God gave the law to. Yes, you are. Why didn't you do what it said? Why didn't you keep it? Why didn't you love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and soul and your strength and your neighbor as yourself? Verse 14. For when the Gentiles who don't have the law 
by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Gentiles are capable of doing the right thing. And sometimes they do. But if you, who call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you have all of this. But what? You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? I don't think Paul is like accusing individual, like every single one of you are thieves. That's not what he's saying, is it? He's saying, aren't there Jewish thieves? I mean, you're really proud. We're the descendants of Abraham and we're better than they are. And so these Gentiles think they can come in and they can have part of our inheritance. These Gentiles think they can come in and they can be on equal standing with God, with us. Really? Why are you so special? Because you have the law? Aren't there plenty of Jews who have the law and yet they say don't steal, but yet there's still many of you who steal. You who say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? There's actually a lot of stories, I think, from the first century about Jews who, they, I mean, they didn't respect an idol. It was nothing, right? It's just a piece of metal. So they didn't mind going in and if they sacked a city or, you know, whatever. And so they sort of had a bad reputation of robbing things from temples. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You condemn the Gentiles You think, as a group, you're better than they are. But aren't there thieves among you? You you think you're better than them, but aren't there adulterers among you? You think you're better than them because you don't worship idols, but yet you, as a group, have this reputation of robbing idols' temples. Verse 25, for circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What difference does it make that your circumcision as circumcised as a sign, I'm, I belong to God, I'm one of God's children, if you don't do what the law says? So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, here you have uncircumcised Gentiles who are coming into the church, right? They're not waving the Jewish flag, they're not becoming Jews, they don't speak the language, they don't wear the clothes, they don't eat the food, they don't keep the holidays, but yet their lives are being transformed so that they're doing what's right. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. You think that because you, you have these little markers, we're God's people, we're God's people, we're God's people, that you're going to get different kinds of treatment, and you're not. 
In fact, these people that are coming in and being transformed so that they're doing what is right and good, they condemn you as a group when you don't do what is right and good in spite of the fact that you had the law and you of all people should have known better. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Wow, that. I know it doesn't fall on our ears the same way it fell on their ears, but that's a huge statement. No one is a Jew who just is circumcised. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Maybe we could sum it up this way before we close. Because of God's righteousness. Oops, I'm sorry. I turned that off. I'm not used to that. (laughs) Because of God's righteousness, being Jewish will neither save you from the curse of sin nor earn you preferential treatment with God. Now, I know that there's nobody in this audience that thinks that it will, right? But if we're going to understand the arguments that Paul continues to make throughout this book, then we need to understand this is, this is the people group that he's working with. And he's trying to bring two groups of people together to understand that those who have faith in Jesus the Messiah and those that become his disciples and followers are all God's people, are all being delivered from the curse of sin. And all of them will be treated well by this righteous God because God is righteous. Not because God's changed the rules, not because God is acting unfairly towards the Jewish people, but because God is acting fairly, because God always acts fairly. God always keeps his promises. God is always righteous. Let's close with a prayer. Most Holy Father, you are righteous. And Father, we await the day when you will redeem these mortal bodies, when Father, we will be a part of inheriting and receiving what you have promised to your people, the inheritance that's being saved and preserved in heaven for us. Father, we are not worthy to receive such a gift, but Father, we are so thankful to be your heirs, to be spiritually the descendants of Abraham. May you bless us this day and every day as we do our best to follow Jesus, our King and Messiah. It's in his name we pray. Amen.